Welcome everyone to another episode of Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It's September the 4th, and I've got a great show for you this week. First, I'd like to talk about my week. And as usual on this podcast, I review some of the more banal moments in my life that I may find humorous or frustrating. Some of these, I think, may qualify for a bizarre, bizarre featurette, and some of them not so much. I throw them in here, not so much for filler, but just to inform you what type of an individual I am. I figure if you're going to listen to my perspective, well, you may want to know who that perspective is from. And so that's really what this sort of intro is all about. So let me start initially by talking about my week, in that I've been recuperating from the campout that I had last week. Now, I talked about it last week, and I don't want to get into specifics uh, this week about it, but just to say, I am still exhausted (laughs) completely. Uh, I have been trying to recover by doing as little (laughs) as possible, (laughs) and I gotta say... On some cosmic scale, I think I think those I've made plans with this weekend are trying to accommodate me against my will. And this leads me to this idea of old friends. Are they really worth keeping around? Really? And I say this because, you know, there, there's, there's a number of different types of friends that you have, uh, specifically that I have. So you have the friends that you see every so many weeks or months that you keep the conversation light and you just sort of, you know, banter about what may have happened in the time since you've seen each other. And, you know, you might delve lightly into politics or religion or science or whatever. But really, it's just sort of a enjoying each other's presence type of friend. And then you have your friends who really latch on to you, and they want to be an active part of your life. Uh, Of this sort, I have very few. I mean, I can count them on one hand, and I'm okay with that. Uh, And of them, I think only maybe two or three of them are worthy. And I say that because I've made plans multiple times with some of my friends and I'm not even entirely sure why I call them friends, because they either blow me off or they don't return my phone calls. And I would understand it if it was a one-sided thing. If, if I was continually calling them and saying, hey, let's hang out at X time and day, and then, you know, they call up and cancel. Well, that's one thing, because that's all one-sided. But they call me and presume innocence over the last time that they blew me off and act innocent and act uh, wounded. 
And they always have a story. And then they say, oh, but I would like to see you at X time. And reluctantly, I make an appointment for said time, all the while blowing off all of my other friends so that I can see this group of individual. And then they do it again. And there's always a story, and I'm always a sucker for falling into it. And I don't know if it's because I've known them for so long, or if I've gone through so much with them in my young adult life. But I'm pretty much at my fucking limit. I mean, how long do you keep friends around if they are no longer friends? And how long does time and service matter? You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, we're not talking about government jobs here. We're talking about people that at one point you needed each other, and now it seems they need you. And you don't need them. I just feel like I'm, I'm at my point where I want to shake loose those that do not benefit me. And my reluctance lies in that I've had such a rich and vibrant and worthy history with them. And But that only goes so far. Also, another thing I wanted to talk about. I was backing out of the parking lot at my job like my real life, you know, job the other day. And I got to ask, like, what is the distance that tells you the person coming perpendicular to you through the parking lot has to stop and wait? Because I was pulling out and I look behind me. I don't see anyone there. I pull out. I'm about three to four feet. Like the back of my car is three to four feet out into the road and then suddenly there's a car there honking at me traveling perpendicular in the parking lot and the way I see it is that they should have not honked their horn like indignant assholes but actually like stopped waited the two seconds it would have taken me to take my car out and drive away show a little bit of basic respect but instead they honked their horn I turn back, I look at them, and I'm shocked that there's someone there because literally seconds earlier, they were not. Meaning, they had to have been flying through the parking lot. And then, they just drive around me anyway. So they honk, give me long enough to realize they're there, give me the the ugly mug that they stick out to society whenever something doesn't go their way, and then they drive away. And I feel like at some point, I'm not in the wrong here. Like, at any point, I am not wrong. I was like four feet out. It, I, I would understand. If I was like six inches, if I was a foot, and I would even go so far as to say two feet out into the parking lot, then I would stop and I would wait for them to go around. Or if they couldn't get by, I would pull back in. Common courtesy. We live in a society, people. But instead, I was like four feet out. Does it? Are they really that special? Are we as a society so self-involved that we can't wait seconds For someone to pull out in front of us. I mean, just the rules of the road. If they are pulling out, let them pull out. What's the big deal? Is your life so in flux, so important that you can't wait? No. No, you're not important. You are one of the billions of blips all over the universe that mean nothing. So just wait the two seconds. You are not more important than anyone else out there. It doesn't take long. Swallow that ridiculous self-serving pride of yours 
and realize that there might be someone else in the universe that may want to do something that may collide with what you want to do. Choose your battles, people. God, I, like it was just so ridiculous. She was like laying on her horn and just mad dogging me like I owed her 10 bucks. Give me a break. And that's another thing. I, I didn't really want to go off on this, but I'm going to do it anyway. What is it with women drivers when they're facing other guy drivers? There's this assumption that because I'm the opposite sex, I'm always going to be in the wrong. I I can understand and generally accept that men as a group are pretty retarded. And, and you know, I'm a man, so I, I can say that from an informed position. You get us together and we kind of fall into our primitive natures. Uh, women in groups are pretty much the same. Uh, retarded, just not on like a, a sort of primal level. They're just sort of retarded in a bubbly level. Um, you get women isolated, and if it's in contrast to another man, it's almost like there has to be some sort of battle. And I don't know if this is a result of the women's liberation movement way back in the, the 60s and 70s or whatever, but... It does genuinely seem like if it's one-on-one, the woman is so much more antagonistic than the man. Maybe it's the way we're raised, maybe it's the way we're uh, informed through our individual cultures and through society as a whole, whatever it is, but this chick, seriously, and it might be because I called her a chick instead of a woman, (laughs) that might inform it also. But she could have waited, like, what's the big deal? Yeah, so I'm a dude, backing up, what's the big deal? I'm not trying to assault you. I'm not degrading your human rights as an individual. I'm not shouting down your position in society or paying you less than someone else. I just want to back out of my parking lot. Like, that's it. And I was there first, mother... Oh, you know what? Okay, so I'm not going to get all pissed off about this anymore because the more I talk about it, the more frustrated I get. It's so stupid. So here's the rule. The rule according to Adam. If you have pulled out and you should be pulling out looking behind you, Um, and you see another car come, if you are less than four feet, stop and pull back in a little bit so that car can go by. But if you're more than four feet, get out there and make them wait. It's ridiculous. They can wait the couple seconds. It's not a big deal. And everyone else running through the parking lot at ridiculous speeds, remember, there are other people there. There could be kids. There could be animals drive safely. What's the big deal? I don't care if you're trying to make it to your yoga class and it started 10 minutes ago. You're already late. Deal with the extra seconds it will take. And add insult to injury, just, you know, to throw it out there. She ended up waiting at the exact same light I was, so it's not like she really got any further than me. Fucking idiot. Alright. Well, okay, like I said before, that's enough of my ranting, right? (laughs) I do have a great show for you. Uh, Today's in The Devil's Advocate. I'm going to be going back old school style to The Devil's Notebook. We're going to be talking about the importance of being evil. Oh, yeah. The article Anton LaVey wrote in The Devil's Notebook. In Infernal Informant, I'm going to be talking briefly about Republicans Against Science, a New York Times article. And another article I find very interesting, and I think you will too. Florida Pastor. All atheists on a list so we can avoid feeding Satan. Seriously, this is an act like a current article. I couldn't believe it. And this is actually like a blog of a news article. Uh, and in Creature Feature, I have 
Gyps Fulvis talking about uh, music and his last album and his coming uh, re-release, I should say. And I might throw in a bizarre bizarre, but I can't promise anything. It depends on how long we go here. So let me stop yakking on. Is that even a phrase, yakking on? <laughs> let me stop BSing and complaining about the sexes and driving. And let's dive right in to the devil's advocate. In this arid wilderness of steel and stone... I raise up my voice that you may hear To the east and to the west I beckon To the north and to the south I show a sign proclaiming A death to the weakling Wealth to the strong Can I get a hail Satan? I said, can I get a hail Satan? We are the devil's advocates Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. As always, let me preface this segment by saying that I am a Satanist. I am a member of the Church of Satan, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Let us open our Devil's Notebook to page 16. The article is on the importance of being evil. Anton LaVey wrote this speaking to those great evil personalities in our history that have unexpected but very real positive results. And and let me sort of qualify that. I'm not going to go over this article line by line, as I say every time, because you should already own this collection of writings. If you don't, it's it's really not expensive. What's What's your problem, man? Save up. Next time you have the opportunity to drop a 10 on, on a book. Make it this one. <clears throat> okay. So, Satanism defines good and evil as good is what you like and evil is what you don't like. And Satanism defines it that way, but that's pretty much how human beings define it, you know, before it was ever really written. I mean, that, that, that's just our our nature, Right. But you can objectively look at individuals in the world history as we know it and say, wow, that was someone that... It doesn't matter where you stand on theology or on politics or on social values or individual morals. That was one evil person. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to drop any dimes here because the article speaks specifically to different personalities. But... much like Satan is perceived by the Christian world as evil, it can be argued that there's some genuine benefits of Satan. One, to them, to that population, uh, it gives them someone to rail against, and that's a satanic statement. Uh, It gives them something to go against to keep everyone of their herd in line. As Satanists, it gives us something to look up to. It gives us an idea of that is the goal. This is the metaphor that we identify with. Not so much because others find him evil, but the tenets in which they define as evil, we identify with. 
And, and the good parts of that are very real. Imagine all of the art that has been created in the devil's name. And I'm not talking about a historic level, though you can go far back if you'd like. But let's talk since the Church of Satan has been formed, more specifically. If you're not educated in the vast array of Church of Satan members, that's fine. But let me tell you, the few that I know are amazing artists. I've had some of them on the show, and I plan to have others on the show uh, to verify this. And it's not all traditional art, writing, music. I mean, it, it spans the gamut here. Even traditional graphic art meant to sell you things. <laughs> I mean, these are all tangible benefits of this evil Satan. And it's not to say that Satan makes us do things, because that's not the reality behind it, but that we identify with what he stands for. Well, that does come through into our art, into our work, into our passion, into our lives. You know, this article talks about a number of other things as well, and that's because it is... Because there are benefits to having grandiose evil in the world, some people may want to think that doing lesser evil things might cause benefit as well. And that's not the case at all. So the article speaks specifically to uh, pulling off the wings of a butterfly, for example. It's a tiny, tiny, minuscule act benefits no one in the long run. Not you as an evil genius that <laughs> you're trying to do, you know, whatever that means. Um, but th there's no actual reaction to it. So if we look at evil as a process, or if we look at evil as a means to an end, the reaction to it is that end. Now, traditionally, those committing these evil acts don't have that end in mind and don't have that reaction as the goal in mind. They're just trying to express their own demons in whatever, at times, quite sick and twisted uh, ways. And, and here's something that I think should be mentioned as well, that because these grandiose evil figures throughout history existed doesn't mean that we as Satanists should feel any connection to them or admiration because, quite honestly, on the whole, the results that they have caused to their evil acts aren't always great. Uh, they may be transformative in a culture and in a society, which in order for a society and culture to grow is important. But the acts themselves, you know, we can admit, are deplorable. And we do not try to defend them. But because you don't defend deplorable acts does not mean you cannot appreciate the results of those acts. And that's really what this article is talking about. At least that's how I see it. It also talks to the idea that If it wasn't 
for these horrible evil people doing these deplorable acts and the results thereof, mankind itself would cease to evolve. And this could be evidenced and is mentioned in the article through news. You know, we always complain that there's only bad news, but no one really cares about good news unless it's someone you know or unless it's you. I mean, how many times do you want to read about someone uh, saving a dog or someone donating money? At some point, it's no longer interesting, which might explain why it's always bad news in the news. It keeps people coming back for more. It's that horrid shock value that is within our natures that we want to see calling out to us. There's nothing wrong with that. Recognize what we are. We're human beings that love to slow down and look at an accident. Sure, if we're behind that person slowing down and looking, we're complaining, but as soon as it's our turn, yeah, we're taking a glance. We're going to spend a moment, ease up on that lead foot just a little bit, hoping that we're going to see that crushed skull or that blood splatter across the road. And as soon as we do, gasp in horror and drive away as fast as we can, hoping to forget it. But we wanted to see it. No one slows down for an awards ceremony. (laughs) I certainly don't. (laughs) It's important to have evil in the world. You don't always have to identify with it. But there's always some form of benefit to it. And we as Satanists have to understand that. Because it is at the core of what we identify with. And if we didn't have that, what would we be? Another version of herd? Not for me. Let's move on to the infernal informant. Warriors of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, all in the infernal informant. Hi, this is the New York Times, the opinion pages. Op-ed columnist... Paul Krugman, published August 28th, 2011, Republicans Against Science. John Huntsman Jr., a former Utah governor and ambassador to China, isn't a serious contender for the Republican presidential nomination. And that's too bad, because Mr. Huntsman has been willing to say the unsayable about the GOP, namely, that it is becoming the anti-science party. This is an enormously important development, and it should terrify us. To see what Mr. Huntsman means, consider recent statements by two men who actually are serious contenders for the GOP nomination. Rick Perry, (coughs) that was my shudder, not the article, and Mitt Romney. (coughs) I, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Mr. Perry, the governor of Texas, recently made headlines by dismissing evolution as just a theory, one that has, quote, got some gaps in it, unquote, an observation that will come as news to the vast majority of biologists. But what really got people's attention was what he said about climate change. Quote, I think there are a substantial number of scientists who have manipulated data so that they will have dollars rolling into their projects 
And I think we are seeing almost weekly or even daily, scientists are coming forward and questioning the original idea that man-made global warming is what is causing the climate to change, end quote. That's a remarkable statement, or maybe the right adjective is vile. The second part of Mr. Perry's statement is, as it happens, just false. The scientific consensus about man-made global warming, which includes 97% to 98% of researchers in the field, according to the National Academy of Sciences, is getting stronger, not weaker, and the evidence for climate change just keeps mounting. In fact, if you follow climate science at all, you know that the main development over the past few years has been growing concern that projections of future climate are underestimating the likely amount of warming. Warnings that we face civilization-threatening temperature change by the end of the century, once considered outlandish, are now coming out of mainstream research groups. But never mind that, Mr. Perry suggests. Those scientists are just in it for the money, manipulating data to create a fake threat. In his book, Fed Up, he dismissed climate science as contrived phony mess that is falling apart. I could point out that Mr. Perry is buying into a truly crazed conspiracy theory, which asserts that the thousands of scientists all around the world are on the take, with no one willing to break the code of silence. I could also point out that the multiple investigations into charges of intellectual malpractice on the part of climate scientists have ended up exonerating the accused researchers of all accusations. But never mind. Mr. Perry and those who think like him know what they want to believe, and their response to anyone who contradicts them is to start a witch hunt. So how has Mr. Romney, the other leading contender for the GOP nomination, responded to Mr. Perry's challenge? In trademark fashion, by running away. In the past, Mr. Romney, a former governor of Massachusetts, has strongly endorsed the notion that man-made climate change is a real concern. But last week, he softened to a statement that he thinks the world is getting hotter, but, quote, I don't know that, end quote, and, quote, I don't know if it's mostly caused by humans, end quote, moral courage. Of course, we know what's motivating Mitt Romney's sudden lack of conviction. According to public policy polling, only 21% of Republican voters in Iowa believe in global warning, and only 35% believe in evolution. Within the GOP, willful ignorance has become a litman's test for candidates, one that Mr. Romney is determined to pass at all costs. So it's now highly likely that the presidential candidate of one of our two major political parties will either be a man who believes what he wants to believe, even in the teeth of scientific evidence, or a man who pretends to believe whatever he thinks the party's base wants him to believe. And the deepening anti-intellectualism of the political right, both within and beyond the GOP, extends far beyond the issue of climate change. Lately, for example, the Wall Street Journal's editorial page has gone beyond its long-term preference for the economic ideas of charlatans and cranks. As one of former President George W. Bush's chief economic advisors famously put it, to a general denigration of hard thinking about matters economic. Pay no attention to fancy theories that conflict with common sense, 
the journal tells us. Because why should anyone imagine that you need more than gut feelings to analyze things like financial crises and recessions? Now, we don't know who will win next year's presidential election, but the odds are that one of these years, the world's greatest nation will find itself ruled by a party that is aggressively anti-science, indeed anti-knowledge. And in a time of severe challenges, environmental, economic, and more, that is a terrifying prospect. And that's the article. Now, it could be argued that Paul Krugman is a liberal. I like to think of him as an objective writer. I'm a bit more progressive than some. So take it with a grain of salt. But the core of what he is speaking to is absolutely truth. Look at who are the Republican frontrunners. Look at the core Republican base. Evangelical Christians. Anti-science fanatics. If they weren't in this country, they would be the Taliban. Because that's the political realization of what the Taliban stands for. Now you may call it hyperbole, and you may call it freak, progressive, liberal spin-doctoring, but the reality is the people that these Republicans are praying to, the people that these Republicans are molding their actual beliefs to, don't believe in science. Don't believe in objective realism. In reality, they believe in an invisible man who is always broke and will send you to a fiery pit if you don't do what he says. Seriously. What's shocking to me is that there are actually educated people who identify with the Republican Party. Now, I get, if this wasn't the post-1970 Republican Party, I would actually agree with a significant portion of what they're saying. But this isn't that party anymore. And it hasn't been for a long time. They are pathetic, anti-science, religious fanatics. And for someone like me, a Satanist who has perspective, that's a disease that needs to be cut out. And that is as fanatical a statement as some that they have made, but mine stands on the side of science and reason and perspective and reality, and not some whimsical fairy tale. It's pathetic, and it's sad, and it's disgusting, and I hope. And this sucks because I really don't like Obama, and I do not like the direction that he's gone. But if it's between Obama and one of the two frontrunners, Perry or Romney, I choose Obama. And that's a sad thing to say. And it hurts me actually saying it, to be quite honest. But it's true. Because it is quite literally the lesser of three evils in this case. And that sucks. That sucks so bad that this is the best that we as an American society has to offer. <laughs> it's just shocking to me. 
This is the creme de la creme of American political action. Obama, Perry, and Romney. <laughs> I'm actually crying inside a little bit. <laughs> Alright, well, before I cry anymore, let's go ahead <laughs> and move on over to uh, the next article, which is just as shocking in its own disgusting way. This is from crooksandliars.com. August 31st, 2011, by Nicole Bell. Florida pastor, put all atheists on a list so we can avoid feeding Satan. It's a familiar plan. It's the kind of plan that many totalitarian regimes would love to implement. Pastor Mike Stahl of Florida wants to put all atheists on a watch list. Why? Because haters are going to hate. His words... Brothers and sisters, I have been seriously considering forming a Christian grassroots type of organization to be named the Christian National Registry of Atheists, or something similar. I mean, think about it. There are already national registries for convicted sex offenders, ex-convicts, terrorist cells, hate groups like the KKK, skinheads, radical Islamists, etc., this type of national registry would merely be for informational purposes to inform the public of known, i.e. self-admitted, atheists. For example, let's say you live in Colorado Springs. Colorado. You could simply scroll down from the iNet site slash blog. I would have. To the state of Colorado, and then you would see Colorado Springs. You would see the names of all the self-admitted atheists who live there. Example, if an atheist's name happens to be Phil Small, the individual's physical address and the other known personal information would not be disclosed, though perhaps a photo could be. Now, many, especially the atheists, may ask, why do this? What's the purpose? Duh, Mr. Atheist, for the same purpose, many states put the names and photos of convicted sex offenders and other ex-felons on the internet to inform the public. I mean, in the city of Miramar, Florida, where I live, the population is approximately 109,000. My family and I sure would like to know how many of those 109,000 are admitted atheists. Perhaps we may actually know some, in which case we could begin to witness to them and warn them of the dangers of atheism. Or perhaps they are radical atheists whose hearts are as hard as pharaohs. Yeah, he actually says pharaohs. In that case, if they are business owners, we would encourage all of our Christian friends, as well as the various churches and their congregation, not to patronize them as we would only be feeding Satan. Frankly, I do not see why anyone would oppose the idea, including the atheists themselves. Unless, of course, they're actually ashamed of their atheist religion and would prefer to stay in the closet. See what this guy's doing there? He's equating being an atheist with shame, with embarrassment, and the idea that anyone might oppose to him making a list so others might act aggressively or violently to them? Well, if you disagree with that, then you're just ashamed of who you are. Really? I seem to recall when a certain California proposition was advertised against, and there was a list made of those against that, 
that it was the Christians crying about lists. Let's put that on the sideline and finish the article. Let's just keep in mind some other words. One, (laughs) you may not be familiar with these, but let's just say they might be biblical. Do not judge lest you be judged. Two, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Three, and why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice that log that is in your own eye? Four, or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? Five, you hypocrite. First take the law out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Matthew 7, 1-5. And I'm reading this, and I want you to understand that this isn't from me, this is from the quote. (laughs) This is from the blog. I'm just informing you of its entirety. It's a little awkward reading a Bible verse, to be quite honest. (laughs) I'll continue. You are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment... For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practices the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Romans 2, 1-3. And the last one is not biblical. I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That was Mahatma Gandhi. The blog suggestion is actually a year old, but apparently Pastor Mike didn't get enough traffic to his online church come blog and opted to run the piece again in Facebook. It got the attention Pastor Mike was looking for, although perhaps not the kind of attention he had hoped. He took the post down again after South Florida's The Daily Pulp linked to it, and I'm sure he received all kinds of comments on his particular brand of Christianity. Okay, so this was one guy. Throwing one idea out there. He's not alone. There's a lot of others. And I'm not saying that there's going to be some revolutionary list and some fire lit in the evangelical or base Christian mind. Because the reality is that most Christians don't really care that much. You know, I'm of the firm belief that most Christians aren't actually Christians at all. They just identify with it because of uh, family history or because that's how they were taught. You know, it's, it's not like an actual true hardcore belief. Not like the belief that the sun will come up, for example. Uh, this is just one dude who puts out an outlandish thing that gets a reaction out of people. Certainly gets a reaction out of me. Uh, because it speaks to something that I don't think he meant. It speaks to the infection that is fanaticism within the Christian world. Now, we look at it throughout all of the rest of the world especially in Islamic, but also in Judaic circles. This idea of fanaticism taking over the core of the belief, the core of the religion. Can we stop pretending, yes, there are people of those religions that aren't fanatics, but the religion itself fuels it. And no, the writings, the the truth behind those religions doesn't, but that's not what we're talking to, and certainly that's not the problem. It's obvious because of those few articles that um, 
I'm sorry, those few uh, biblical passages that were in this blog proves that this pastor is really full of shit. I mean, he's just an ignorant individual. But that's the type of person we're getting. So at what point does it become worthy of existing anymore? If we're getting more fanatics out of it than not, if there is more pain coming from it than not, why are we putting up with it as a society? Why do we say, no, it's okay, that's not the whole of the group. Meanwhile, people are still dead. Meanwhile, people are still being ostracized. It's not the whole group of Christians that are murdering people under the name of God. But what about those who are being? We need to grow up, people. We need to, on a realistic level, say that no, it is not okay for individuals like this to spread their vile propaganda. It is not okay for religions to exist when they breed venom. It's not. Might is right. And in that, we will always be on top. But it is for those that suffer the hands of the witch hunt that I speak. It's frustrating. When you live in a modern society and you have idiots like Pastor Mike Stahl of Florida who are so ignorant in their core beliefs. And it would be okay if it was just some common citizen like Mike Stahl. But we have actual politicians that are seriously contenders for the Republican nomination like Michelle Bachman who are insane with their Christianity. Who are actually jihadist with their Christianity. And I'm not saying that with a tiny speckle of hyperbole. That's literal truth. Through their own mouths. And their actual contenders. We, as a society, are breeding this fanaticism. We, it's just insane. And, and I don't propose anything for this because I don't think there's a way. I think we go through these sort of ebbs and flows of fanatics and rationalization. I think it's always been that way and it always will be that way. Sometimes we'll be on top and sometimes we'll be on bottom. We just sort of have to deal with each situation as it comes. But seriously? Like, this is the result of Christianity. Insane people like this. It's just... Ugh... And, and, like, they see themselves as good. No, no, we're, we're holy people. But, you know, lists, hey, you know, that's cool. I mean, yeah, I think at one time Jews were all on lists, but that couldn't have been that bad, right? Oh, wait, it was? Um, well, these are atheists, though. They're, they're, not, they're not really humans, right? <laughs> all right. So <laughs> that's it for the infernal informant. Uh, I, I laugh because I find it shockingly funny and, uh, you know absurd at the same time, I guess. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a bit of a break. Let me uh, recollect myself here if I can. At the other end of this break, we're going to dive headfirst into uh, Creature Feature and our conversation with Chips Fulvis. Can't wait for that. See you on the other side. Prepare for incoming message. 
Prepare yourself for Deep Six Radio. I am Matt, host of Deep Six Radio. And I am in Russ. Yes, we are. So if you want to be one of the six taking on the oh-so-lovely Idris and want to be featured on the show... Send your emails... And MP3s... To us at... Deep6... At RadioFreeSatan.com Include a bio... And anything you want mentioning on air... We are open to any genre... Apart from rap... Deep6 also includes a fine selection of alternative rock... As well as multiple other genres... So why not jump on the roller coaster? That is Deep6 Radio... Deep6 is available on... RadioFreeSatan.com And also iTunes... A week later, we, we look, look forward, forward to you joining us. End of the line. Are you looking for music from the 80s and the new wave post-punk and other hits? Jay Nothing, the host of the Metro, will take you back to the 80s with songs that made the decade of me so memorable. Get the weekly updates at RadioFreeSatan.com. And remember, Hail Satan. You know, dogs are different than cats. And hey, what if Jack Nicholson were... Hey, what if We Are the World was sung by the cast of Friends? I think it might go something like this. Hi everyone, I'm Jay Leno. Anyone remember when I was funny? Eat Doritos! Ladies and gentlemen, Dane Cook! Are you fed up with comedy that's made for the masses? Sick of stand-up comedian hacks with the same old routines that you've heard a thousand times before? Equally tired of shock jocks who equate loudness with laughter? Hello, my name is Reverend Bill M., creator and host of The Devil's Mischief. A show where every week I present a new hour of comedy and novelty of devilish proportions. So tune in to The Devil's Mischief. Visit devilsmischief.com or radiofreesatan.com to download the latest podcast. The Devil's Mischief. Carnal comedy clips and netherworld novelty numbers simply not made for the masses. Venture down into Lambert's basement and join me, Dave Ingram and Eagle, Hello. where we time travel via nostalgia to a golden age of big band swing and jazz, only available on Radio Free Satan. Through the trees, the damsel in distress comes, breaking through the underbrush. Fear painted on her face. The darkness hunting her is near. She is swamp, water slowing her escape. The creature nears, the damsel turns, hands rising to her sides as a last effort to thrust the creature back. Welcome to Creature Feature. 
Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I have a very special guest. I've got Gyps Fulvis with his album Nocturnes for Nightmares. Gyps, how are you today? Pretty good, pretty good. Can't complain at all. Life is great. How are you doing? Not too shabby, man. I, I'm really glad you agreed to come on the show. I've been listening to your music uh, since your Valpurgis Nocturnes release, and I believe that was sort of a, a limited release to people paying attention, right? It was a limited release only to uh, Church of Satan members in good standing. I gave out a sample of what's going to become on my follow-up album, Nocturnes for Nightmares, which will be, won't be out till Valpurgis Noct 2012. It's only going to be about one-third of the new album coming through, which is, so far, coming along very well and is going to be pretty mind-blowing. Nice. I gotta say, already, I mean, the, the first album, Nocturnes for Nightmares, is pretty mind-blowing in and of itself. I'm I'm used to sort of, you know, music that's atmospheric or, or soundtrack in nature. To be a little less, um, I don't know the word, uh, impactful, powerful, but w- w- as soon as I listened to yours, I was literally blown back in my seat, just, uh, you know, speechless for a minute. I, I could not believe that I don't know, it, it was just really powerful to listen to. I, I really dug it a lot, actually. Um, and now, great, great. I'm glad that it resonated that way. I'm really glad that uh, you came on so we could talk about it. But before we start talking about the music proper, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm, uh, I'm in my late 20s. I reside in the New York metropolitan area. Um, I'm a pretty reserved guy, generally. I'm not very, uh, I'm not very outgoing, nor am I very loud in nature. But I'm very observant and analytical of other people. So if I if I kind of invite to a big event or a social event where a lot of people were present, I generally be the type to sit back and just observe what was going on until somebody interesting came along to talk, and then I'd probably get into a three-hour conversation with that <laughs> one person or several persons nice. who were like-minded. Yeah, that's very cool. Did you start um, creating music at, at a young age, or is this something you came into uh, as an older man? Well, I've, I've been creating music since I was in my teens, because I, uh, I started playing guitar when I was 11. I was given piano lessons at a young age, I'd say, in my childhood sometime. It was it was really blurry back then, but I was given piano lessons for about a year and a half. I enjoyed it, but I wanted to learn electric guitar because I thought it was fun. I, at the age of 11 or 12, it was around that time I discovered bands like Metallica and the ACDC and a lot of the 70s and 80s classic rock and heavy metal that influenced me at the time, and I really picked up guitar and started playing from there. It wasn't until I got into my later teens when I started exploring darker, heavier music, like uh, symphonic black metal from Europe and progressive power metal and other forms of music that combine not only sheer like, heaviness, but also combine you know, musical eloquence and texture and great technical ability from each of the band members. Nice. So you had mentioned earlier that the um, oh, uh, Valpurgis Nocturnes were available to uh, members in good standing. When did you realize you were first a Satanist? I realized probably in my early 20s. See, I could start, go back a little further into my teens where, as I said, in my sort of heavy metal phase when I was in my early teens when I started playing guitar, I was listening to bands, I got into bands like Slayer, like bands that explored themes that had satanic references, but not from a standpoint that reflects genuine Satanism. At the time, I'd never even heard of the Satanic Bible in my teens. I never even heard of the Church of Satan until my later teens. But before that, I was raised in a family that imposed Catholic and Christian values and 
to me. And I realized that I was embracing them. I was different. I didn't understand them. I questioned everything and declared myself an atheist later on in my mid-teens and didn't believe in any God and refused to conform to any religion. In my college years, when I turned around 19 or 20, around that cusp, I decided to just give a read of the Satanic Bible because I found it in a bookstore and I decided to just flip through pages and give it a skim just to see if, if, if it was really all was cracked up to be. And it turns out a lot of, the, of what was in it philosophically made perfect sense because prior to that I've been reading Frederick Nietzsche, a little bit of Machiavelli here and there, and a lot of what was contained in the book had a lot of similarities and kept me interested. Then I started to read deeper into it started to explore further works from Anton Sandra LeVay, as well as other members of the Church of Satan hierarchy, such as Magus Gilmore, who got the Satanic Scriptures in 2007. And I just decided there that I wasn't just an atheist. I embraced Satanic philosophy because not only did it resonate with me on a personal, intellectual level, but it also allowed me to unleash my deep emotional and psychological turmoil at the time through ritual and through creativity, and it it just opened many new possibilities for me, and it is probably, discovering Satan is probably one of the best things that's happened to me, and I have no regrets, and I don't have looked back since. I registered as a member in 2007, sent them active membership in 2010, and here I am, right now. Very cool. I always find it interesting, and I say this probably every single interview I do, but I always find it interesting the motivations behind uh, Satanists joining the organization. Was there any, I don't know, any defining action or moment that made you think, you know what, now I, I just have to join this organization? Well, the turning point came in early 2007 when uh, I was at a point where I was applying the principles of Satanic philosophy to my life. I read all the literature and I agreed with most of it, but then I was at the point where I wanted to start putting it into practice through means of lesser magic and greater magic to see if I'm obtaining real results. I didn't want to just become some arbitrary occult like just talking about things and trying to explain myself away without making myself do something in the outside world to uh, get myself on track to personal and financial success. Mm-hmm. So I decided it would be best to put my money where my mouth is and <laughs> register not only to show my support to the legacy that Anton Taylor left behind, but also to possibly further my goals, my career with other like-minded individuals in the organization as a cabal, as a tool, as a useful resource. And it's been more rewarding in many ways. And I, I have to say that joining was, it was not an act of trying to belong. It was more of an act of showing support, showing respect, and showing appreciation for what Dr. LeVay left for those who understood and resonated with what he brought to the table. Nice. So let's move on a little bit to uh, music specifically here. Was there a defining moment or, or song that inspired you to walk the path of musician? I mean, you said that you had been creating music since a, a young man. Did any one band in particular, or was there you know, just, just something that, I don't know, uh, ignited that flame within you? Value 
negative, it didn't really matter. It just struck a chord with me. Later on, I would say a band like Dream Theater or a band like Queensryche who used technical brilliance and thought-provoking lyrics also wanted me to further myself as a musician to express myself not only as a musician but also as a lyricist or a songwriter. It wasn't until a few years back when I started getting into ambient music and world music such as Brian Eno, Dead Can Dance, other sort of acts who use a lot more percussive and chant-like elements in their music to bring out more emotion without using a lot of lyrics. Trent Reznor is another very big influence on my career. All of the early work in Nine Inch Nails to his recent soundtracks that he's done really struck a chord with me. So I then started exploring classical music in my college years and started getting deep into 20th century film scores, suspense film scores, horror movie film scores, just abstract, surreal classical music. And a lot of it just resonated with many different ways, like a chameleon almost. I haven't conformed to one single style that's rubbed off on me, but I would say just music in general in many different areas has driven me to create my own music and to see if I can come up with something that's original and also something that's clearly defined instead of just being a group of notes clustered up and going all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly think with this last album you have done that uh, and more. When you were creating this album, did you have... I don't know, a usage in mind for it? Did you have an application in mind? Well, it was an interesting point because I started this project in April of 2010. It was, I was at a very dark time in my life emotionally. There was a lot of stress. It was a stressful time period with a lot going on that I won't get specific into, but I was at a time when I was at a turning point where I was bringing my fears and my turmoils and troubles a light and trying to come to terms with them and bring them to light. So when I was creating this album, I was trying to create music that would send creeps down my spine, bringing out the things that I did not want to think about, such as the painful memories and experiences I've had throughout my life, things that scared the living crap out of me that I would always try to repress, yet never would want to deal with on a rational level. So I think with creation of Nocturne Nightmares, it was like a ritual in itself from start to finish throughout those months. Each composition led to another, and it was like each one representing a different fear of my own in some way back in my mind, whether it was a rational or irrational fear from a real-life experience or a nightmare I've had or a movie I've seen or a book I've read. A lot of them dealt with fear, and I feel that this concept could not only resonate with myself, but also to others come to terms with this, either for purposes of coming to terms with their own fear or for having just a fun, ghoulish way to scare the shit out of themselves on Halloween <laughs> or around the time of the year where it's appropriate. Yeah. Or they could even be used to scare other people for fun and for prank. <laughs> nice. Well, you know, let me delve a little bit deeper in that, in that methodology there. Do you think that by creating this music to help you on some level, either cope with or accept those negative experiences in your life. Do you think you, you created this as a form of, of exorcism of those those fears, or is it sort of a, a means to just see them for what they are and have a, a, 
a clearer understanding of them? I would say it's to have a clearer understanding of what they are, in a way. I would also say it's the means of seeing some of what they are and sort of analyzing a little deeper where they could either be extinguished completely or be turned around and used to your own advantage. Yeah. Not always fears are necessarily bad things or irrational. Some of these fears were actually things that would allow me to take more risks and to further myself and allow myself to advance further, whether it's on a physical, mental level, or an emotional level. And I feel that the creation of this proved to be rather powerful as, looking back, I listen to it and I feel that I've gotten a huge burden off of me and that I've allowed this project not only resonate with myself, but it's also making its way out to others who are listening to it. And it's created a lot more opportunities for me to further it and to network. So I'm really, really pleased with how the results came to be. I'm always interested in in practical applications of music, and so that that really uh, interested me when when you mentioned the... I guess the conceptual process of, of creating this this last album of yours. I uh, I think I think your your album here, Nocturne for Nightmares, would be a perfect soundtrack to aid in the uh, transformation through uh, lycanthropy, as outlined in like the Devil's Notebook or something. It it it's just one of those soundtracks that you can find whatever you need in it to bring up your own fears you know it's it's non-specific it's it's abstract but it's it's powerful enough to bring it up you know one of my favorite things to do because i i I love the sensation of fear personally is to uh, listen to music like this um, and now specifically this and just crank it up so that all other senses are sort of overloaded with just the, the the power of the music, and allow it to take me to, you know, some of my, my the scariest places in my mind. I find if you can if you can become scared and allow that fear that you naturally fear to sort of embrace you, well, there's there's a transformative power just within that alone, and I think your album is is perfect. For, for that specific application. Um, did you have a... Oh, sorry, go ahead. That's a great, that's a great. Did you have a specific demographic in mind, uh, a specific target audience for this, or, or was it just to get something out of you? Initially, it was something to get out of me. I wanted to eventually show it to a narrow audience first to see how it would come across. I wanted to see if it was worthy of showing to the public and bringing it to the world, or if it just plain sucked. I wanted <laughs> yeah. honest, harsh criticism and feedback. So I, you know, sent, sent samples to a few friends and fellow members of the church Satan, to listen to and to give me some honest critique. And many who I've shown it to loved it. A few didn't care so much about it, but those who really loved it were really jumped on it and behind it. So after that, it inspired me and moved me to bring it out further to the public. And now I'm working hard to circulate amongst those who love anything scary, such as horror films, suspense films, first-person shooter video games, horror fiction. I have authors such as H.P. Lovecraft. 
or even anything by Don Cage. Nice. Are there any tracks that you find particularly interesting? Uh, you, do you have any favorites in this album? I don't have any particular one that I would say is my all-time favorite because I feel like each track in its own place has its uh, has its place. But if I were to pick, if I had to pick one, I would say Clyde Nestor's Visit, the very one of the last tracks in the album on the official release. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be playing that uh, at the end of this interview, and we'll let uh, everyone in the audience uh, hear and enjoy that as well. So, where can people find your album? Right now, they can look for it on iTunes. It's it's available on digital download. It can also be found on Amazon MP3 for a very reasonable price. CD right now is out of print because Blue.com pulled the plug on music distribution within the last month or two. But I am re-releasing it on CD through CDBaby.com ready by Halloween of this year and I'll be keeping everybody updated on that if in the meantime you still want the update you can visit my official website which is www.gipsfullvus.net it's g-y-p-s-f-u-l-v-u-s dot net I'd just like to also take a quick moment to give a shout out to my friend and associate Twisted Genius who uh, helped you know, assist on the artwork of the album and has been behind promoting the album quite a bit recently, so I'd like you to check out his website, too. It's www.twistedgenius.com. Genius being spelled with a J instead of a G. Nice. I've actually um, had him referenced by a number of uh, people I've interviewed, so definitely go check his, uh, his, his website out if you have the time. Well, you know what, Gyps Vulvas, thank you so much for joining me. I've, I've, I've truly had a pleasure listening to your music and uh, listening to you uh, explain the, the conceptual process behind it. I am definitely looking forward to your next album as well. If it's any indication of, from what you've put out in Nocturnes for Nightmares, it's going to be fantastic. And for all of you out there... Oh yeah, it's, it's it's all on my side, man. I, I I truly appreciate it. I know a lot of a lot of people either you know want to promote their work and it's not really quite up to par, and so I I'm always hesitant to have people on. But you're one of the people I, I sort of sought out because I I really uh, I I thought this music is ripe with power. I mean, from the first track to the last. Nocturnes for Nightmares keeps you on the edge of your seat and keeps that hair pricked up on your skin, just that fear running down your spine. It's it's a lot of fun, and I guess fun is subjective because it's pretty fucking scary. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun for me to listen to, but it might be a little bit scary for the rest of you. And if that's the case, then definitely pick it up because it's rare to find an album that's actually scary um, and you know, actually powerful at the same time. It, you know, it's not just this sort of play-in-the-background type of tracks. Um, this is center stage music. So absolutely go pick up Nocturnes for Nightmares. Gyps Fulvis, 
Again, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me, and I wish you the best in all of your future endeavors. Uh, hail Satan, man. You're welcome, and thank you very much for having me on. I, I really was excited, and it's been an extreme honor to be on your show, and I would like you all out there to take a listen to this and uh, tune in and uh, spread the word again. Yeah, we definitely will. And now, Clitumnestra's Visit by Gyps Fulvis from his album Nocturnes for Nightmares.
And that is it. For yet another nine cents, I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. Also, keep in mind, it's only two months away from my very special, very informed, greater magic episode. That's right, I'm planning on putting out for the week of October 31st, a roundtable discussion from some well-known Satanists with a capital S, the creme de la creme of ritual Satanists, to talk about, specifically, greater magic, ritual magic. It's going to be a powerful episode, but I need something from you, audience. I need your questions. There are many things that I want to talk about specifically, but... If you happen to have any questions, what is your favorite symbol of Baphomet? Uh, What is the favorite music you listen to? Um, Whatever it is, whatever type of question you would want to know of another Satanist concerning ritual magic, do you really believe it could actually change things? Let me know. I will ask it to them, and I will get you the expert opinions of gentlemen who have been doing it for years. And I'm not talking about two. I'm talking 20 or more. Look for that coming this Halloween. And I'm looking in the mail. And how can you send those questions? Well, you can post them on the Facebook page. Facebook.com slash 9cents. Or email me at info at 9centspodcast.com. I know you want to be a part of this because this is going to be a historic conversation. And I want you to be a part of it, too. So, I'll be looking in my email and on the Facebook page for those questions. You can visit the Undercroft Facebook, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. You can also listen to the show through Radio Free Satan or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com or subscribe via iTunes by searching 9 cents. If you would like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. If you'd like to meet other Satanists, visit Undercroft at Satanet.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine Satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit Radio Free Satan, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I am your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan!